Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That's Killian's Red by Nada Surf, hands down my favorite song about beer. You know I will use any excuse to play Nada Surf. Love those guys. But if you're into something else, there's also one bourbon, one stack, one beer. And And heck, even humans have been drinking this stuff since at least the 5th millennium BC. Egyptian and Iraqi mythology had goddesses who enjoyed their pints. The Obama White House homebrews three different flavors, and this has been the decade of the microbrewery, so much so that more than 22 million barrels were produced last year, nearly three times 2008's volume. Great recession, eat your heart out. Apparently hard cider is growing even faster. No stats, alas, for Bartles and James, but no worries. This show will get you schlitz for microbrewing, so stay tuned. But first, full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market. Elwood Thompson's, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. Full disclosure, joining us in studio, great microbrewery minds. Uh, who have concentrated in central Virginia, which is, like many other regions in the country, experiencing this kind of pre-Cambrian explosion of yeasts and hops and uh, cider, as it were. We have Annie Toby, the first draft beer columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Joining us also is Courtney Maley, founder and owner of Blue Bee Cider, which was established in 2013 on the James River in historic Manchester, After she put in her dues as an apprentice, she was previously an office worker, and she decided to make the big switch. Bienvenidos. Thank you. Joining us as well is Carl Homburg, owner and head brewer of the forthcoming Castleberg Brewery. He's been in IT for 20-plus years, and he has an interesting story. This was in no ways preordained for him. Somebody brought him a home-brewing kit, and bam, next thing you know, he's signing a lease for a 2,700-square-foot Kegerator brewery facility and restaurant. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. I got I to gotta ask you guys first, Courtney, Carl. Again, this was in no way preordained. Courtney, yours is a different world of cider. Um, maybe you were not agriculturally inclined in your office job. How did this happen? Take us back to, say, the worst of the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. Where were you? Uh, I was working at the Federal Reserve in community affairs, and we were um, one of the more affected departments by the financial crisis. So it was about as fun as a box of tacks. And um, I mean, I really did believe in the work that I was doing. But long before I started working at the Fed, I had an epiphany that I needed to be in agriculture rather than in economic development, which was what I was doing. So I have an uncle who is a red wine maker in Washington State. He's done very well. He's one of the founding fathers of wine in Washington and is renowned for his reds. So naturally, I did not want to make red wine. And in Virginia, we have a lot of white winemakers, and I didn't want to go into a crowded market straight out of the gate. So what does a winemaker make if they don't want to make red wine or white wine? They make cider. Uh, why, why Virginia? Were you raised in Virginia? Did you? I was raised in an army family, so I'm at home anywhere. But Richmond is where I was when I finally decided to make the change. And apples are one of the things that Virginia does best. We're a top apple growing state. And that's one of the things that we're known for agriculturally. It's funny you should mention this. In a ditch outside my house on the West End are a bunch of yellow transparent apples that are sprouting out of nowhere. Um, They were like volunteered by a bird or something. I try to rescue them every July and do something with them. Some people say applesauce, but I'm thinking now to bring them to you and maybe you'll stamp them out with your feet and turn them into cider. It's a great apple and it did not come from seed. So apples are not true to seed. Someone grafted and planted that tree. Devious. Carl, tell us how you got here. Well, I've been in, like you said, in in IT for 20 years. And about five years ago, it was time for me to think about getting out. Think about um, doing something that I was passionate about that I wanted to do till I retired. And my girlfriend bought me a homebrew kit, and that was it. Were you passionate about beer beforehand? 
I was passionate about beer. I wasn't like pa- the self-medicating variety, yes. Schaefer's, six mm. for two dollars. No, no, the craft beer still. Mm. But I wasn't passionate about making beer until I got the kit. What was that kit like? Where did she buy it from? What what does it she, entail? It, Walk it, us through it. It, it. Bought it online. I brewed a batch of beer on the kitchen stove, and you know it was using extract syrups instead of actual grains. And, and it's stuff. not like you have to drink it with a fork. You actually so, was yeah. there a lot of iteration involved? What do you mean? You have to constantly brew batches, brew batches, throw them out. No, no, no. The first one turned out pretty good. You know, it, it was good enough that I wanted to do it again. So then I started. I did another one. And that one somebody actually liked, somebody mm. other than me. That's kind of where the passion started, you know, when, when somebody initially said that this was good and it wasn't me saying it. Sure. And, you know, once that happened, you know, I then started brewing some more. And I have brewed some beer that I've thrown out. You always do, but you just move on. Sure. And E. Toby. Uh, I'd like to know, you know, the Federal Reserve here in Richmond put out a very proud uh, press release, an article, uh, I think in conjunction with Richmond Regional Tourism, about craft brewers raising the bar in the American beer and spirits industry. And if we just isolate beer, uh, last year, 2014, there were 615 new craft breweries that opened, pushing the number in the U.S. to 3,418, more than twice the number that existed just five years earlier. Now, you have to wonder when something like this hits the tripwire of a regional Federal Reserve who's dealing with monetary stimulus and all other things that have nothing to do with this. But when you look at the numbers, oddly enough, this is something that has just grown regardless of the Great Recession, of the, mm-hmm. the credit crisis. Uh, you've seen uh, hugely fluctuating commodity costs. And at the same time, we see national champions like um, Anheuser-Busch uh, selling to international conglomerates. I think, is what, was it Coors going to InBev or... And they're shrinking as well. All of the big guys and are their, shrinking. And their volume their numbers sales. aren't exactly. great. Well, well, craft beer continues to grow. But what you've got here, in in um, regardless of recession, is a very uh, parallel sort of movement that's with the whole movement towards buying local, towards knowing who is producing. You know. Someone can go to Blue Bee Cider and they'll see Courtney or they'll see people there that they know actually work with the product. And once Carl opens, people will be able to see him, to talk to him, to compliment him on his beers, to ask them how they made them. And it's it goes with, I mean, your, your sponsor here, it's perfect, Elwood Thompson's. It's the same kind of movement that has made them so successful over the years. And that's where a lot of this is coming from. And you've got ones that are growing by leaps and bounds, and they're huge now. They have had to change the definition of a craft brewery because some of the big ones are getting so big. But you also have some that are just excellent producers of great craft beers, and they're happy to be part of their community, and they're happy to stay that way. What is it, though, about about alcoholic beverages uh, writ large? Look, I love RC Cola and artisanal colas. They just don't have a chance against Coke and Pepsi in the stores, and it's all about economies of scale and bottling and squeezing your your bottlers uh, and the vagaries of the supermarket aisle. Um, why, why are the economics, uh, the return on investment, the risk-reward of Generally, you know, adult beverages uh, attractive, Courtney. I don't understand. Well, alcohol in general is a countercyclical industry. So when the economy's down, production. I mean, and a vice demand, product. But again, you always think of the the six pack of anonymous private label beer that costs two dollars. If you're going to go home and drink alone, so, it's not a. <laughs> and so what I find with our customers, and we have customers all different income levels, stages of life. For somebody who doesn't. Maybe they're at the beginning of their career trajectory. This is a way that they can treat themselves without spending a fortune. So you can buy a nice beverage. It's packaged beautifully. It's very well made. It's presented nicely. And they can give it as a gift or they can enjoy it themselves and spoil themselves but not break the bank. Now, how did you how did you hedge your bets going in? I hear these these stories about how you used uh, uh, farm hands and uh, volunteer labor. Maybe there were um, uh, people that were bartering, or uh, when you come into an area that has an explosion of uh, microbrewers, even though that they're doing beer and not cider, there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and intelligence. It's a it's more of a kind of a utopian community than 
you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch versus Coors and their conglomerates? So I apprenticed at Albemarle Cider Works just south of Charlottesville and learned so much from them how to grow apples, how to make— I pick apples with my son up there in Carter Mountain. Oh, Carter Mountain, yeah. So Albemarle Cider Works is a little further west and mm-hmm. south of there. Um, and I really drew on the cider community, which at that time there were only two cideries in Virginia when I apprenticed with them, and now there are 12 and that's growing very quickly. We have a little bit of a fruit supply concern. So the apples have to catch up with the makers. And then once that happens, what's your favorite apple to use in a cider? Are you a wine sap person? Are you a Brayburn person? Well, Brainbur- Brayburn is actually low sugar. It's a good apple for diabetics, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't be making cider from that. But wine sap is one that we use a lot. for. Um, we use it for the charred ordinary, our sour style, which is very popular with craft beer folks, especially those who like sour beers. We also use it for our dessert product, the harvest ration. So it can do a lot of different things. It's a very flexible apple. And it ages well. So most ciders, once they're in the bottle, they're kind of ready to go. That's as good as it's going to get, where something with a substantial wine sap component will continue to improve over time. I heard an interesting conspiracy theory that people who soak themselves in kegs of beer in college, drank so much of the stuff, find that they have a gluten intolerance later in life, and then maybe they turn to cider. Yes, we do get a lot is, so of So is this a play on the gluten-free uh, explosion in the grocery aisle? Well, it's not a play on it, but it's a substantial customer base for me. So I would say probably 20% of my customers are celiac. And my husband is celiac, so we cater to them in the tasting room. It's a gluten-free tasting room. Carl, you talk about this uh, in your notes to me as a family affair. Young families like to go. You see the food truck courts outside of places like Hardywood, the very famous beer brewery here, uh, that it's an event. It's not just a counter cyclical thing you want to, you know, uh, or, or, you know, frat brother thing in college. Yeah. Uh, Now it's actually become, you know, you take a tour of the place. They have activities for children. It very much reminds me of some of the things that I see in Napa and Sonoma and, you know, out in Trump wine country here in Charlottesville. I think we're we're following after the wine industry right now with, with things like that, um, the food trucks, you know, the the camaraderie going in on, you know, the Kentucky Derby watch parties happening at the breweries, hmm. you know, as opposed to happening at a bar. We're seeing a lot of that type of stuff now, you know. I mean, cornhole tournaments. So you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of that going on right now, and it, it's like any mentioned it's the the local thing you know people want to participate and support a local business as opposed to a large chain how does this work though with the groceries when you have to deal with you know we're we're also in the middle of a huge grocery war here in central virginia you have wegmans coming here there's martins which is a giant i hold you know conglomerate duking it out with kroger uh the big u.s players food lion um, you have fresh market whole foods all these other players want to come in, and it's an intense battle for shelf space. And I see that the big conglomerates are cheating, and they're trying to have things that kind of look like they are locally brewed. Mm-hmm. I, you know, well, even though are. even though you can't they call Blue Moon a, a microbrew, that's something that they try to kind of push in the microbrew aisle. And it's very hard to tell the difference. You might have an IPA stamp. There are um, all well, kind of Kroger, Martins, Whole Foods. They are getting a very substantial. Uh, placement for craft beer in there. And they've got their beer buyers on social media who are out there promoting what they have, their latest releases, and they're doing a pretty good job. So they are helping to promote these small brewers. And I imagine they even, they have some great ciders on now as well. So they are aware of what's going on. And so they are supporting local at the same time. Yeah, they're not locally based perhaps, but they are supporting the local because it's popular. Hmm. I want to know, Courtney, when you um, transubstantiate this from a passion to a business, kind of what are some of the things, you know, you're speaking potentially to a lot of people out there who are considering, well, gosh, you know, we've been making a small batch of something. The White House does it. Um, My husband loves cider. I have a gluten intolerance. Um, at, at what point did you kind of say, okay, I got my apprenticeship, I know how to do it, but I want to scale commercially? I would imagine it would be a little scary, you know, from a, a career transition to take on something like this, especially in the wake of uh, the economic slowdown. And what did you learn and what were some of the big 
the big levers you kind of had to push to turn this into a big business. And how big are you now? When I was working at the Fed, I obviously was interacting with a lot of bankers and credit for small businesses, microcredit, that was part of our wheelhouse. So I had a sense of what a banker is going to want, and I knew that I would need financing if I did decide to do this. But I did not quit my job, go to school, get an apprenticeship with an expectation of starting a business. What I needed to find out is what I didn't know about starting this kind of a business. Do you mind my asking what you used uh, to sustain yourself while you were in an apprenticeship? You didn't quit your job? I did quit my job. So did you then use I savings? had to financially prepare. How so, did you do this? Well, um, paid off personal debt, put money in savings. You know, that's all you can do. <laughs> you have to get ready. And my husband continues to work. So, um, But our salary, our household income, I think, was cut by two-thirds after I left my job. So it was, we had to get ready. What was your recourse, though, if you went out in your kind of vision quest for the year and you realize, you know what, this is getting too crowded, I'm not going to do it, were you going to go back to the Fed or another office job? So when I started, it was 2011 when I started writing my business plan, and Hardywood hadn't even opened their doors yet. So I know it's hard to think at that time that it was a big nowhere. It was nothing. I had to prepare. My original business plan didn't anticipate any of this. And so I ended up riding a wave. And back to your original second question, we grew much faster than I expected. And I think it's also noteworthy to add that there were very few urban cideries mm-hmm. too. So what yeah. you were doing wasn't just ahead of much of the craft beverage move, but even in the cider, mm-hmm. well, it tell, was a great tell, idea. I mean, tell me, Annie, how much of that is creative destruction? You know, Scott's edition here, creative destruction, you, you build something out of the ruins, out of the ashes, oh, yeah. a phoenix arises. Mm-hmm. For years, that was just a wasteland. Mm-hmm. And anything kind of in the in the shadow of the minor league baseball stadium there, abandoned warehouses... And the gentrification just has been whiplashing in the last five or six years. Maybe it's a function of you get this this hugely popular brewery, you know, Hardywood with its uh, gingerbread uh, batch that everyone mm-hmm. in the country is asking you to bring, right? Um, restaurants popping up, and now suddenly everyone wants to turn key in Scott's Edition. And this is a, a really historic tract of land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the full answer to that question is beyond anything that I have really studied. It doesn't really have—I think it has a lot more to do with real estate and how they've promoted it rather than, than simply the craft beverage over there. Maybe it was just in the right place at the right time. I guess you've got uh, Isley was the first one over there. Ardent came, and it just maybe sort of opened— open people's eyes to the possibility, but I'm sure that you can give a lot of credit to the developers over there right. as well. Well, your announcement, you know, Castleberg's announcement, the newspaper said, came just the day after the Vale Brewing Company signed a lease for an 11,000-square-foot building in Scott's Edition. So when you guys open with the Vale, there are going to be five breweries within a one-mile radius. I mean, the, the area already has Arden Craft Ales and Isley Brewing, as well as the Growlers to go beer store. Right. So, you know, pun intended, saturation. You don't worry about this? Mm-mm. No. What what makes your what makes your batch so demonstrably different from some of the others? Well, that that's the nice thing about beer is everybody's batch is going to be different, whether I make it or whether somebody else makes it. That's going to differentiate it. Well, and just as an example, personal example, on Saturday I went to Arden's first anniversary party walked a few blocks and I was at Isley's. So it's not, I didn't go thinking, oh, we're, which one do I want to go to? Right. I was like, I'm going to go to both of them. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, a uh, contentious piece in January about the local hullabaloo here over the uh, arrival of the Stone Brewing Company of Escondido, California, which is a microbrewer, but one with uh, real national tentacles. I mean, the 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 the, the CEO goes on uh, on Bloomberg, on CNBC. This is something that Governor Terry McAuliffe was really hot for. He went out there. He hosted these guys at the governor's mansion. But then it, it brings up uh, the controversy here of are you pitting kind of uh, champions against the small players that don't have access to incentives? I mean, at some point, it's a you know microbrewer of uh, welterweight size going up against the heavyweight microbrewer. When it comes to the finances, I can understand the um, the controversy. However, I, you know, I won't get into politics and address that. What I see 
aside from that is simply that it's not really them versus the small guys. They already distribute here. Yes, people are going to be going there for their tasting room and for their restaurant, but they will also be bringing, you're going back to the tourism, be bringing a lot of people in. And while they're here, they'll visit to the other breweries, the other cideries, the meadery, the distilleries in town. So it's not really a, a matter of competition in that sense, aside from financial incentives. But the financial incentives were huge here. The city, you know, the city offered to use $31 million of public money to build this brewery, restaurant, and beer garden. For how many jobs? Um, did they say there were going to be 500 jobs? I so didn't see the number. How, what was the cost per job? You calculate that. So a, a typical uh, cost for job, economic development is my previous background for a project of this type, paying twenty to thirty thousand dollars per job through incentives, different layers, things like that, is not totally unheard of once you combine it all together. So I don't have the math in front of me. I think I remember it being less than that. But the problem is if something like that fails, if it becomes like a, a you know theme park project gone awry, the taxpayers are on the hook for it. And there's very little. Well, I'm not saying you it. shouldn't be accountable, but it should be thought of in context. Well, the only reason I bring it up right now is because some, you know, some are out there, uh, uh, you know, shopping this around to states. And obviously, this is a gorgeous place to come to. You have the riverfront. You have accessibility, a radius to several uh, big cities. But I see the verve that you guys show and the many others here who just emerged out of nothing, really without a huge incentive. And then I see other players who are maybe trying to fill the vacuum. You have mega regional uh, microbrewers filling in the vacuum for where maybe um, Anheuser-Busch, you know, InBev, those players have since conglomeratized. And So I think of it like this. Um, shopping malls have anchor tenants. There's a big business and there's a lot of small businesses. Maybe there's two or three big ones and several small ones. So Stone is... Nordstrom, and maybe Hardywood is Macy's, and I'm Shrofsky Crystal. So we can all play together. We all have something different to offer. Hmm. Now, you have family involved in the wine industry in Washington State. Uh, what are some of the similarities, kind of the culture? You, you get maybe an older, more sedate, you know, I taste the, the, the tannins here. Uh, don't give me this cab soap, kind of a sideways type scene. It's it's. Uh, what are the peculiarities? What are, what are, what are the universality uh, issues of wine that you bring to uh, cider. You you tipped your hat at it earlier. Right. So cider is a wine. It's made from apples instead of grapes. And when we do tastings in our tasting room, our tip to our heritage as a winery is we offer a winery-style tasting, which is a quick splash of everything that we have, rather than only offering a flight or a glass. So we offer different ways to sample the product that are in keeping with our community that is the Virginia wine community. Um, we are on the Virginia wine map, so we get a lot of visitors who find us that way. 80% um, of the people who come into my door every day have never been there before. So we're very much a tourist destination. Um, some of the other brewers are maybe more neighborhood-oriented. And so we all have different customers and I think that actually helps us complement one another rather than be competitive. Now, you mentioned earlier how um, it was it was almost like a little whiplashing how quickly this business grew past your initial expectations and the business plan. Share that with our listeners. I mean, what did you plan for? How, how much did you think you could provision? What were your test markets? How far would you drive it out? What did you do about distribution? How does a person even get their head around this? You asked so many questions. <laughs> and you know what? What is, the, what is the meaning of life and how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of Tootsie Pop? So um, when I was first planning, my first year's production was right on target. And then my second— What was your first year production? My first year production was 1,200 cases, mm -hmm. um, wine cases. And then the second year's production was 3,000. So we had a bumper crop of apples. That's sort of the bottom line. I ended up with an enormous harvest, and we miraculously got better at pressing apples into juice. So I accidentally had like 100% growth, and I didn't mean to. It just sort of happened, um, but it was mostly based on the fruit and the production. But what do you do, hire truckers or distributors? I mean, who who even walks you through something like this beforehand? I, I wouldn't understand, 
You just make it up as you go. Really? That's what being an entrepreneur is. You fake it until you make it. You don't fake it. You figure it out. Mm. Fake it until you make it is a line from Alcoholics Anonymous, I hear, which is <laughs> probably not a good line to use for this show, but I'm not an AA, by the way. Yeah. I just heard that. I used it so many times in performance reviews that people are like, do you realize that's from AA? Uh, so then... And then, so you don't have to deal with like the Cisco's and performance food groups of the world. Are there dedicated liquor distributors? So I am a farm winery, Uh which means I am allowed to self-distribute under Virginia law. And that's what I do. So I don't, I don't deal with distributors. What did you do for capital? You said you were husbanding your cash, pun intended, saving your money, watching your expenses that year. But then when it came time to to shell out for capital expenditures and property plant, equipment, advertising, Mm -hmm. where did you go? Advertising. You're funny. No. (laughs) So um, I intentionally created a low capital production process and I was able to take out a loan. So I I have a loan that covers... Was that a metaphor for like indentured servitude? I don't understand. How is a low capital... How how do you do that? You have to hire people. You have to build a facility. Well, first you have to get money. So, you know, write a business plan, shop your financing partners or potential ones. I got lucky. I found someone who wanted to fund me 100% within four days. So that was good. Could I just get an idea from an entrepreneurship perspective? Did Mm -hmm. you have to give up equity doing that or was that debt financing? Debt is debt. So Mm -hmm. you get a loan and you pay it off and you work out terms. And every lender's terms are going to be a little bit different. And we we do sometimes get into the financial arcana here Mm -hmm. because we want to hold the listeners' hands. So when your cash flow was servicing the debt well enough, you know, with that bumper crop you had into the first and second years? Well, so um, we're now selling the stuff from then. With cider, we're on an annual production cycle, so it can take me 12 months to get from apple to bottle. And think of, like, the snake eating something, you know, big. It sort of works its way down the snake. So I had a ton of apples in the fall of 2013, and we're still selling that product today. I'm only just now working my way through the 2014 harvest. So... Cider is very different from beer because we have a much slower process. I only get one chance a year to decide how big I want to be in 18 months. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're getting intellectually sloshed with uh, some of the great (laughs) minds of microbrewing here. We have in studio Annie Toby, who's the first draft beer columnist for the RTD. Courtney Maley, we're just listening to, founder and owner of Blue Bee Cider, uh, established in 2013. And Carl Homburg. Uh, owner and head brewer of the forthcoming Castleberg Brewery. Tell us more about Castleberg. You close your eyes at night and you imagine this place that's going to have uh, families coming in. And, and, and in your mind's eye, what, is it, what does it look like? It's not, it's not a cheesecake factory. It's not a, is there a neat analog out there for what it's going to be? I'm envisioning a kind of a heavy metal gothic theme. Mm. So despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage yeah. motif. And the beer yeah. will be the beer will be misanthropic. What, mis- the, what the is beer it? will be classic, mm-hmm. classic styles, um, Browns, IPAs. Um, I do a old German style called a Rogan beer, which is made with rye instead of barley. So they're they're going to be classic styles, and there's going to be styles that are brought back from extinction. We talk about extinction. There was there was a, a flourishing market for microbreweries, I mean, almost by definition, before Prohibition. Prohibition smashed that, and then for the balance of uh, the 20th century through the, the Great Depression and everything else, you just had a bunch of regional brands that were merged and kind of pushed out of existence, and then suddenly, next thing you know, in the aughts, you have three or four major players, and they're merging left and right into international conglomerates. I want to understand, Annie, this kind of... Um, this, this, this created a vacuum for something new, something uh, artisanal. I'm not sure which part created the vacuum. For, something, first of something all, very peculiar well, prohibition happened in, right. caused a lot of problems because obviously people couldn't drink. By the time they grew up mm-hmm. and were of drinking age, all they were used to was soft drinks. And as you say, so many of the small brewers, the regional and the local brewers that were around had disappeared by that time. The few that were able to last 
uh, I believe Richbrow here in Richmond was one of them. Uh, they struggled along for a while, but because people's palates had changed, because refrigeration and uh, mass production was growing, the big guys kind of became bigger. Um, they began using a lot more adjuncts for some, for various reasons. Part of that was contributed to by the world wars when brewers were limited as to what they could use. So with all of these different factors building up together, yeah, we kind of got really, really, really bland palates. And then, of all people to thank, uh, Jimmy Carter made homebrewing legal again. Homebrewers began brewing, not that they had not ever been brewing before, but they became um, more open about it, more people began brewing, and it just caught on. Does he have a peanut brew, his family? I never... never he had a brother that. that was a brewer. So. Well, he had a brother yeah. that did a lot of things. Billy <laughs> Beer, or well, yeah, <laughs> Billy, Billy Boy. Beer. It's funny you mention these things. The, uh, the trade group, uh, the Brewers Association, actually has a chief economist with a PhD. His name is Bart Watson. And uh, he, <laughs> he wrote his dissertation uh, for Berkeley on uh, a comprehensive survey of Bay Area brew pubs, one pint at a time. I mean, great work if you can get it. He wrote, uh, while the theories of economies of scale and consolidation may be useful to a certain point in Econ 101, beer isn't the widget you learned about in Econ 101. The service component of your local microbrewery, taproom, and brew pub, including local branding and ingredients, limited batches, all of these different things are thrown into the customer calculation. Um, so you can't just think about uh, beer and adult beverages purely as commodities, um, something that the whole ca craft brewing movement shows that this stuff isn't the same that the likes of Anheuser-Busch and the big international players are competing with. You are definitely competing on a person-to-person, -person, you know, whites-of-the-eye level, the, the, the brewmaster coming out and meeting people uh, there and, and, and people liking it much like they do a winery and uh, taking a chance and a flyer on you. And a lot of it is word of mouth, much the same way we saw with Hardywood's gingerbread <laughs> batch, mm -hmm. which, you know, there was all sorts of innuendos about. I mean, the, the, uh, what, what was that backstory, incidentally? Everybody was calling me around the country, Farzad, you live in Richmond, man? I heard some of that fell off a truck. Now there's a shortage. I got to try it. Is it like the highest rated IPA beer ever? I'm not a, what, what's the word for beer? Not enophile. It's a there's no, like, beer lover? Beer geek, beer nerd. I'm not a beer geek, but what happened there that kind of sparked another round of interest? Oh, Hardywood got a 100 rating for their gingerbread stout at a local, well, not a local, like... Beer Advocate. Beer Advocate, mm -hmm. which is a um, national magazine and rating place. And, I mean, right there, I think at the time, Beer Advocate had only given out, like, five or six 100s. Do we have something like the German purity law here in the no, United States? No, we don't. Absolutely no, we don't. No, we don't. What is that thing, incidentally? Like, you have the, to have a, it's a, it's a national. Tell us about that. The Reinheitsgebot is German purity laws, and it basically states that you can only use hops, barley, water, and yeast to make beer with. And I talked about the Rogan beer earlier. That was a beer that had died in Germany because of that Reinheitsgebot. It was a very popular drink before they introduced the purity laws. And once they did, rye was relegated to bread and couldn't be used for beer anymore. How do you source the ingredients for a defunct brew? Well, right now, I mean, rye is readily available. And it, it, it's one of the readily available malts that you can use. So it, it's not an issue to source that stuff. Courtney, talk about um, the, the neighborly relationship you have with one of the venerable microbrewers in Manchester, the Legend Brewing Company, which has been there forever in relative kind of microbrewing terms. You mentioned it as a cup of sugar relationship where even though they are a, a beer microbrewery, they help you uh, with certain products and with expertise. So again, it's not the traditional antagonistic relationship, you know, for mindshare, people that go to your uh, brewery and cidery are not going to go to legend and vice versa. Right. So um, when I first started, we didn't have a forklift. And so I was always borrowing their forklift and trading it for cider. And finally, I was able to buy my own forklift. And they're like, where's our cider? <laughs> <laughs> but um, they did a pin that was a blend of York apples and some coffee from Blanchard's. So they did kind of a neighborhood 
um, project, and we were able to help collaborate with them on that. Now, this big player, Stone Brewing, is coming right to your neighborhood. Yes. And the city is going to redevelop the waterfront. Is there something like a halo effect for you, or are you seriously considering a move right now? Well, I'm seriously considering a move, but it's independent of what Stone does. It's Mm. what is best for my business. And when they first came and were visiting, you know, I got to meet them like everybody else did. They actually have a good relationship. Greetings, Earthlings. We're here. We come in peace. (laughs) They have a good relationship with one of our um, cider friends on the West Coast. So we're able to talk about Wandering Angus and the folks there. So it, we, we had things to talk about, even though we don't make beer. We did see uh, co-founder of the, the local beer champion, Hardywood Parkcraft, come out and say that, look, I'd be glad to see my beer served at Stone's new location, but he's wary about the city's arrangement with Stone. He said, does this put the city in the situation where they're now a direct competitor of every restaurant or brewery? This could be a complete disaster. Um, again, Annie, I don't mean to harp on it. I want to understand. It seems like all of this stuff is happening in a kind of utopia where um, the, 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 the community of uh, microbreweries, be it beer, be it cider, be it some other things that are going on, there's more of a, like a kibbutz-type relationship, people helping each other. They don't look yeah, at it as exactly. zero-sum. And, and that is really peculiar. Again, the, the, this, this economist from the Brewers Association says you should not look at this in terms of Econ 101 bra- you know, vagaries. The, because it's uh, like its own microeconomics. Ha <laughs> ha. When you're when you talk about you know quoting, I guess that was Patrick or Patrick or Eric from Hardywood, their their bone they're picking is not with stone. They're picking a bone with the city, hmm. as the restaurants have been. But again, you know it's a, it's a very different issue. Stone is going to play well with them, so they. Their displeasure is, especially I know Hardywood has gone through some issues with the city as far as taxation, trying to claim back taxes on them and different things like that. So it, it does sort of certainly leave a bitter taste in Hardywood's mouth. But again, not a bitter taste against Stone, but against the city. But it does bring up an issue, though. Uh, if if this sec- subsector of the economy, we call it, you know, microbrewing writ large, uh, it does become super competitive if if people around in economic development subzones are saying I'd like to vie for them. Um, does it does it then kind of poison the culture where you're suddenly coming in and and bigfooting other people? It's not like there is no competition. There certainly is some limited shelf space, uh, although there is still room for growth. There are certainly are lawsuits as we've seen. When one person doesn't like the other person's name, they think it's too close to their name, and you know they'll they'll throw lawsuits at them. So there is some of that going on, and I don't think there will be any industry, no matter how much camaraderie there is, just like a family. You're going to have fights within the family, within the neighborhood, within a community, but that does not poison the well entirely and totally eradicate the the camaraderie. Now, you have some stats that show that we are not even close to saturation here. I mean, when they call Central Virginia the Charlottesville-Richmond corridor, they call it like the, you know, the Austin of the South or the Portland of the South of the Mason-Dixie line and all these other things. And obviously there are comparisons to Asheville, which has a huge uh, microbrewing boom and and people going there for weekenders. They used to drive from here before we had our own uh, Mm -hmm. things in this 45-minute corridor attracting people. Uh, What what convinces you that this is not saturated? I think the, um, the the stats that I pulled out, a couple different things. First of all, if you look at uh, per capita breweries uh, in the different states, Vermont is the number one. They only have a total of 40, but of course they don't have much of a population, 40 breweries. But their per capita, per 100,000 adults, there are 8.6 breweries versus in Virginia, we only have 1.3 per capita breweries. So when you compare it with something like like Vermont, we have a long way to go. If you want to look at Richmond itself, you're talking about Portland, which has a metro area population of um, a little over 2 million people. They have a total of 83 breweries. We have about half of what they have, and we have 13 breweries. 
So, you know, we've got a long way to go before we're even like Portland. And do keep in mind, too, that every brewery is not a Hardywood in Portland. There are some breweries that they um, – or, or even a legend that has a wide distribution footprint. There are some that are just satisfied to be their own neighborhood brew pub and just serve their own beers and maybe not even distribute at all. And then Portland, Oregon and Slow Gin Fizz. If that ain't love, then tell me what is. Uh-huh. <laughs> that anyway, was on the tip of my tongue. I digress. I digress. <laughs> are there those scale economies, Courtney, if you see more um, – uh, uh, breweries and bottling companies locally you might get a cut, a discount on the bottles you use, on the glass, uh, that, that this kind of helps going back to your Federal Reserve experience, that that kind of rising tide lifts all boats, at least on the on the cost basis? Well, and I'm lucky because I am a farm winery, so I can be part of the Virginia Winery Cooperative. So I already have access to kind of that purchasing in numbers of many things beyond bottles and caps, also tasting room supplies, potentially storage and warehousing if that's something that I needed. So I would love to see the brewers also create something similar so they can work together for buying bottles and other things that they need because it's it's a real huge cost savings for small companies. You're how many years into the journey of, of looking up from your cubicle or desk in the office and saying you want to look into this? Well, the first time I thought about cider was actually in 2002. Mm. And um, I I had a lot of student loans and life Mm. to live. (laughs) You know, it just didn't become urgent until I almost was 40. And then I was like, stop the madness. I have got to do what I was meant to do and stop doing what I'm not meant to do. So a lot of people seem to have that at age 38, 39. Well, and, you know, Truth be told, my husband had a very long bout with cancer. And once we kind of got close to five years, I was like, I've had enough. It's time to live life. And so that's that was part of my decision. You credit your your husband's uh, um, resourcefulness and mm-hmm. ingenuity and small business mindedness and mm-hmm. kind of helping you. Tell us how you, you shared notes and helped each other as a couple. Well, um, I, I first met him when I was working in Northern Ireland with my regular job. And we were working on economic development projects. And he is, you know, very widely traveled and has a lot of experience in international and multinational businesses. But apart from all of that, he comes from a family of entrepreneurs. And so he's very comfortable with all the things that entrepreneurs go through where I had no one in my family who was really entrepreneurial. On the other side, he had a commercial relationship with a bank since he was 18 years old. So it's just a very different set of experiences. And whenever I would freak out about something, he'd be like, no, that's totally normal. Just Mm -hmm. you just have to be patient and keep on the right track. And eventually this will turn around. And if somebody doesn't see this as a positive, that's not a good partner for you. You need Mm -hmm. to find someone else. So he's and just really helpful. I know we only have so much time, but I do yeah. want to get at some of because you're you're mm-hmm. in C two, you're doing this and you did this, and it's a constant learning mm-hmm. uh, process. What were some of the things you wish you had known, and, and the things you did learn? If you could go back and say to myself, "Gosh, coming out of the gate, I wish I could have X Y Z." Well, one of the, I don't know if it's so much I wish I had known. It was one of the shockers when I had quit my job on Friday and went to cider school the next day on Saturday, and then we were sitting in class on Monday, and I learned that most of the apples grown in Virginia were not good for cider. That was a little bit of a shocker. But fortunately, through the apprenticeship, I figured out how to overcome that hurdle. And that that was one of my big shocker moments. Another one of my big shocker moments is when I found out how long it takes an apple tree to mature. You would think I'd looked this up before I quit my job, but it takes seven years for an apple tree to mature, which is why everyone stopped making cider after Prohibition. Beer was so much cheaper and faster. So, you know, there there are a number of those things all along. We were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I didn't know that. Before. Was there a huge <laughs> was there a single huge moment of doubt fork in the road where you're like, listen, I got to go back. I can't do this. Um, I have that, you know, quarterly. So it's it's not over. You know, I'm a business only three years old. Five years is when you're supposed to, you know, stabilize and be normal. And we have gotten to a place where we're on an upward trajectory. And now I'm going to, like, shake it up and do Blue Bee 2.0 in a new location. So that could be a reset. 
I think, you know, so we'll see how that goes. And do you mind my asking, where are you on in terms of debt and debt financing? Have you been able to pay some of this off? Is it on schedule? Is it not? Do you wish you had taken out more? Do you wish you had taken on equity financing or venture financing? Um, I'm I'm glad I did not do equity financing up till now. That's just not why I went into this business. Um, I prefer not to have losses. But that said, if equity financing is the best path for the business. So I've made something. I have created something now that is a value, not just to me, but to other people. And if we can agree in common on what the future should be, those are people that I'll bring on as investors. But, you know, money isn't, all money is not equal. Um, Different types of money want different types of things. And so I need to find the right kind of money if I bring in other money. Carl, how are you financing? Equity. So you have venture backers? No. Small family friend equity. And they're saying, listen, we expect an exit. They expect a payback. I'm not being coy. We just ask questions. We try to bridge the worlds of you know small business and big business and finance. They're expecting a profit. They're expecting a, a return. I've retained ownership, though. So I've retained control. What do you say when you go into meetings with friends and family members? I mean, this is applicable to everyone here. Do you say, look, I'm doing this. It's my dream. Uh, a lot of people want to back you because they like you. But they're also looking at, um, I imagine in this environment, I'm getting nothing on a savings account. Bonds are paying only right. this much. Um, you are also a beneficiary, and the other microbrewers are, of, of uh, an environment where people who can get credit are getting it on very favorable terms. I'm offering a better return than you would get, say, in an IRA or, um, Do you stipulate that you can pay the dividends in cash or in beer? No. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, am I going anywhere with this? Honestly, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not an expert when it comes to brewed beverages and the like. But you definitely see things out there when it hits the tripwire or the Federal Reserve, and you see all these reports about it. And um, the newspaper, the front of the business section locally constantly, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're sending out sure. there, Annie, cover this, cover this, mm-hmm. cover this. W- what is it about this? And what is it about this moment in time? If you have to take one takeaway. Well, the, the, the one the one takeaway, and I'll say two things. Say yes, three things. It's, it's popular because people do, and you know, as we talked about before, it's the whole local thing, the craft thing. But the the takeaway, especially as far as the the business section goes and the government goes, is the job creation out there. You, it's not just going to be Carl the brewer, and then Carl behind the counter. And you know, as he grows, he's going to be hiring staff to help him in the brew house. I mean, Courtney can go into all of this, all of the different jobs that it takes. And then, you know, with with distributing, once it gets out there and then it expands into the restaurants and it's just a lot of people. And we're we're training them. So mm-hmm. we train them from – well, mm-hmm. my guys, you know, came from Craigslist and the ones who are still with me, the, the first employees I hired were from Craigslist and I had no expectation of having skilled workers. Mm-hmm. I intended to train them. And so we're we're giving them skills that – they yeah. can take to other places. And that's why the Fed, I think, is interested because it's an economy that's creating wealth for many types Skilled of people and many well. types of job descriptions. What is it like to create a job? When you realize that you're out there, you know, at, at first when you're in a fledgling phase, you have to tell people, look, I'm not drawing a salary. I'm taking a risk and I'm asking you to take a risk with me. Just walk us through that. Well, my first jobs I created were seasonal. So... I did everything, and I brought people in to help me smash apples into juice. And then the last day of smashing, that was their last day. And everybody knew that that's the way it was going to be. This is really like Grapes of Wrath stuff. Yeah. And um, I had an apprentice, so I brought him on because I was starting to get overwhelmed. And so he was, I think, two days a week, and then he went up to three days a week, but he had three days a week at another vineyard, so three days a week was the most that I was ever going to get from him, even though he was highly skilled, and I definitely would have taken him on more hours if he'd had them. So because he was locked into his schedule, then I started to cream that seasonal team and see who was available, and one guy just would not stop coming over. And so um, Brian Onmark 
is now our, our sales lead. He, he's a cider evangelist. That's his mm-hmm. title. And how many employees do you have? So um, three full-time and I think five part-time. I lose track of the part-times. Carl, how many employees do you see yourself having in two years? In two years, probably about 12 people. Well, people having read this in the newspaper two days ago, are you starting to get unsolicited calls both from prospective employees? There's a lot of interest here locally. Yes. And Resumes from... <laughs> are starting to come in already. How the heck do you assess people's resume unless you come in like – what do you, do you test them? I, mean, I imagine the first question has to be like, I have give me your favorite no three times. Yet. <laughs> so what's beautiful about this is that there is still an element of make it up as you go along. You're kind of... But I will say, Carl, don't ignore some of those people. Oh, no. Because – my cider maker was one of those people, and he would not leave me alone. I Like every two weeks, I got an email from Manuel, and when we finally had an opening on the seasonal team, I was like, fine, let's bring in Manuel. And he worked one day, and that one day he made a good impression on me. So then we brought him back when we had more seasonal work, and he never stopped working. So, so there are people that are in mm-hmm. it purely for the passion. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, the passion is what really brings the people in. I plan on, for the first year, not to hire anybody, to use, strictly use volunteers. And you're not going to be drawing a profit or a salary in the no. first year? No. Wow, um, so. I'll be continuing to, to work my full-time job. Wow, so it, it does take a village and a kibbutz. And <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. There's something very yeah. peculiar yeah. in uh, microbrewing land out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Any closing thoughts, tips, um, lessons that you'd like to impart to people out there thinking about doing this? I mean— there are skeptics out there that are saying, like, this is the next bed and breakfast trend or you have to... You, well, bed and breakfasts are still around. But a lot go under. A yeah. lot of restaurants go yeah. under. There are skeptics that say yes. that there is a microbrewing well, bubble. There are certainly going to be some that, that don't make it, many because they have inferior quality, some because they just don't have good business sense. But... Overall, the growth is going to continue. I'm not um, the economist, but it, it's, there is no sign of it slowing down anytime soon. And anyone who is interested in going into it, I think volunteering is an excellent way to do it, being, being persistent. You know, as Carl, I know, is, has worked hard at learning his craft as well as at getting financing as the veil that is also in here. I know that head brewer started out as a volunteer and got hired because, like Manuel, he proved himself. And he actually served as a volunteer at The Alchemist or Hill Farmstead as well, but The Alchemist. Both of them. And, yeah, and so because of that, he got hired. He has great experience now, and he's gonna. Uh, have I'm sensing Richmond. so much love that I feel that that it's not too long before we have a clothing optional microbrewery. Oh here. yucky! Right uh, in you the hills. Find me there. Drop city, you know, like Mendocino, California type people. But Don't invite me. No, I would invite you. That might not uh, jive. It won't with, uh, be my brewery. That might not jive with the health codes here. Thank you so much, Annie Toby, columnist, the first draft column for the Richmond Times Dispatch. Courtney Maley, the celebrated founder and owner of Blue Bee Cider. You have to look it up. And Carl Homburg, owner and head brewer of Castleburg brewery, which hits just in a few months at the end of the year? The end of the year. We were talking about the explosion, the Precambrian explosion in microbrewery. We here at Full Disclosure are cold filtered, IPA certified, great filling, more taste, silver bulleted, smoothly fermented with only the choicest hops as pursuant to the non-existent Persian purity law of 1976. Our engineer is John Valentine. We're on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and WRIR Wednesday and Sunday mornings. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.